Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. In the past week, don't know if you noticed, we had a presidential election. Um, and it lasted about five days before Joe Biden was declared the winner on Saturday morning, uh, defeating Donald Trump by a, what will turn out to be a pretty hefty electoral margin, despite some narrow calls in a few close states. On today's Punching Out, we're going to offer reaction to that and to some of the other election races and results we saw this past week and just sort of figure out how all of this will impact workers, as we always like to talk about on Punching Out. Um, Noah, I guess first thing, just what are your thoughts going on? I know that's a broad topic, but what do you feel right now? It's complicated because on the one hand, I do agree with people who say, you know, this, there is relief in this. Everyone who's listened to more than like four episodes of Punching Out knows this. I work in a place that's full of Trump supporters. And even the people who aren't sort of have to get along with that. And so basically there over the last four years, there's just been an absolute ton of just unrestricted shuttery at work and on election day my hope even though i have and as will become clear over the rest of this episode i will i have close to zero faith in the democratic party doing the right thing during a biden administration so spoilers i guess Mm -hmm. but even despite that on the day of i was hoping for a landslide just because it would make so many people who have been so terrible on a pure human level, just have a huge sad. (laughs) And then that didn't happen because why would anything happen to make me happy? But I think we can all take joy in the fact that this particular administration full of just ghouls and the worst thieves known to man has been, you know, rejected that, that they actually did get voted out of power and that, there is a calm that goes along with that. And it, it is very, um, it was very hard to be somebody yesterday who, it it was very hard not to celebrate that. Mm-hmm. There were definitely reasons to smile as uh, we're going to talk about in, in this segment. The, um, the Onion headline I saw was jubilation at news of Trump loss quickly soured by news of Biden victory, which kind of sum up, sums up a lot of what, I'm feeling and what you just expressed. One thing that we can say is the past four years under Donald Trump have been bad for workers, despite all of his posing for as this hero of the forgotten worker in America. Much of the political discourse of the last four years has centered, you know, to an extreme extent that is probably unjustified on these white working class voters who went his way in 2016, specifically in the Rust Belt, and what Democrats could do to win them back, which played a large role in, I believe, why uh, Joe Biden was the party's nominee this year. But as we've discussed every so often on the show, the the administration's policies, the, the things they actually did with the power they had, almost universally worked to harm workers. They worked to reduce worker power in the workplaces. They work to reduce worker safety. Our last episode, you know, I talked to somebody who worked in a steel mill and he talked about the impact that OSHA regulations had on that workplace. And under Trump, OSHA inspections fell. Workplace deaths rose even as he was celebrating the gains for workers in the unemployment rate. There are many other ways in which his administration was harmful. That no, that's exactly correct. It it was very disheartening in a lot of ways to see that the two pronged attack of the of the Trump administration on workers. On the one side, it was done by um, I don't 
you know, not not like a deep statistical engine uh, of analysis here, but just sort of pointing to the unemployment rate and saying, well, that's gone down and that's a gain for workers. And just like uh, this was the case, too, with liberals in the Obama administration, uh, there was no discussion of what jobs were actually being created to lower that unemployment rate. Uh, so you had plenty of. Yeah, yes, more people were technically employed, but they were also being employed at crappy, low-paying, uh, low-hours jobs with zero benefits. And for the last four years, you could actually get a pretty decent segment of the center and the left to care about that. And then on the other hand, a lot of it was all about cultural signifiers of hardworking America. Uh, I still think the best image you can use to sum up the Trump administration was uh, when he was in that truck in like his first year when he got to right, drive the yes. truck. That that was so big because it was clear that this is something he's never gotten to do, and he was so excited, you know, that he got to play with this toy that is normally for the poor's. If mm-hmm. if we really dig down deep into his psyche. And people ate that up. Like a lot of that actually did net him. I mean, there's literally nothing he could do that would cut into his support with a certain subset of people. But there was something about seeing the president get behind the wheel, like a, a certain symbolism there that appealed to a lot of people because it's it's a signifier of sort of what we see when we think of Americans getting back to work. I'm so glad you talked about like the cultural signifiers. Um, in the absence of a, a new episode last week, we aired a rerun on Wayo of our episode uh, titled "What Is Class," where we had talked about the ways in which class in America has become to mean has come to mean something that it isn't. It's been associated with uh, pickup trucks and hard hats, and and so when people talk about the working class, they are imagining uh, a factory worker that no longer makes up you know, the majority or even a plurality of the working class um, in this country, uh, increasingly as jobs have gone towards the servants industry, that is what the working class looks like now. It is waitresses, it is, you know, restaurant workers, it is all of those things, nurses. But nevertheless, this cultural perception persists and Trump has exploited that perception. He has, say what you will, successfully managed to for some group of people, make him look like a voice of the workers, when obviously, as as we've discussed, his policies have not done that. And even if you look at polling data and exit polls, his base is not the working class base people have been led to believe. Um, there, there was a CNN exit poll, I believe, that showed that the one group income group that Trump won was people making between $100,000 and $200,000 a year. Biden won people making under $100,000 and people making over $200,000, which sort of gets at a schism within the Democratic Party, we can say. But Trump is has not been a voice of the poor. That, that's absolutely correct. I think Trump had a, a very seductive appeal to a I mean, obviously, there were the elements of his platform campaign, everything that were just straight up revanchist. And I mean, the the slogan itself is is very much saying that uh, let's go back to a past that doesn't exist, but which we're, we have all agreed to pretend does, right? Yeah. And that is especially appealing for a lot of people who who think of themselves as having been screwed out of money by the government, by uh, the union, by uh, African-Americans and Latina voters and all sorts of other, basically, honestly, non-white people who at the same time, you know, own a suburban home and have two cars and made enough money to basically do whatever they honestly wanted with their lives most of the time. I think a lot about people that I've met who, you know, had union jobs in the household and had parents who that these are for the most part teenagers. So I know I shouldn't be expecting, you know, too much in the way of political consistency here, but they they have union jobs in the household that have provided them with good benefits, with good wages, so that they've their entire lives had roofs over their heads, had uh, plenty of food have not had trouble affording, you know, any kind of educational attainment that they need. 
and who are still saying that the problem with this country is that unions are preying on the working class or that uh, the the government, you know, favors uh, the lazy and takers and whatnot. And Trump very much exploited that. And that's where you get that that whole petit bourgeoisie base of support, because also those tend to be people with outsized voice and outsized participation in the political process. They're the kind of people who they can't buy votes. And we will talk about people who can buy votes later on this episode. <laughs> Uh, just you wait, but they can't. You know they can't afford to drop two million dollars on a congressional campaign to buy a seat or anything like that. But what they can do is talk to every newspaper in their town, and they can you know write, fire off constant letters to the editor and run for school board and whatnot. And these are the people that we really need to come to grips with because not only because they're the group that Trump won but also because that makes them uniquely dangerous in that they have these uh, ideas about what the political process should look like and what things need to happen. And they are also the group of people most likely to be able to make a huge stink when they don't get their way. They are Chud Central uh, at this rate. And we we have spent too much time trying to keep them happy. Right. I, I think a really useful illustration of the Trump administration, it comes in just really his final meaningful action as president, which was the appointment of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court. Um, in, in one of the few cases that Barrett did decide, because she hadn't had very many years as a judge before becoming a Supreme Court justice, she ruled against a African-American employee who, on, on the basis that just your boss's use of the N-word was not enough to constitute a, a hostile workplace. Obviously, this is a standard that will make things worse for workers. But to the extent that it does have a certain appeal among workers, it is because the workers it is explicitly reducing are you know, people of color. It's, it, that is how Trump has been able to win or how he was able to win four years ago. Another thing is that, like, for the most part, his labor policies have not been the ones that garnered the most attention, with the exception of immigration, because as we've discussed on this show, immigration, you know, is a labor issue. It is absolutely a matter of workplaces and workers who um, are unfairly exploited. But behind the scenes, it has been people in his cabinet, um, like... um, his labor secretary, who has routinely worked to do things like um, remove the joint employer standard so that workers can't file suits against McDonald's as a whole. They have to you know, point out problems with their individual McDonald's um, and things like that that have gone under the radar but had a negative impact on workers, even though it hasn't necessarily been seen. Right. And this is the problem that you have with an executive branch that basically both electorates are fine with becoming imperial when it's their party in control. So uh, I said this on the episode where we talked about Trump's Department of Labor policies. The Obama administration showed us what the limitations of governing by executive order end up being, which we knew at the time, but for some reason you weren't allowed to mention, which is that your succeeding administration can just wipe them all out, put them down the memory hole. And that is exactly what Trump did. What his Department of Labor did, all of that stuff is stuff that Congress can uh, change on their end, but they have to take an affirmative uh, step to do so. They can't just say, they can't just veto an executive action like that. And because of that, massive changes could be put in place at at the Department of Labor, at OSHA, on all those labor committees that can't meet because they have no members anymore. Uh, All of those things could be done without ever having to deal with any congressional – not that you know he did this when Congress wouldn't have rolled over anyway, but Mm -hmm. he didn't even need to go there. And also, by the way, I would like to note that as long as we're talking about Trump-appointed Supreme Court justices and uh, African-Americans, Alphonse Madden, the uh, trucker from the Frozen Trucker case, famous friend of the show, Neil Gorsuch's uh, 
fam- most famous legal opinion before he decided that he cared about his legacy is also a black man. But ultimately, what we what you have just said, what you have just pointed out, is that the narrative that Trump was a champion for the working class turned out to be a complete lie. And right. some of us knew that the whole time, no matter what the New York Times uh, or, you know, random uh, conservative Democrats tried to tell us. But now what you've got is, and you're already seeing this happening just a day after the presidential race was called, you've already got a stable of either former, whoops, still Republicans, but who, you know, went, voted for Joe Biden this time. And uh, some of the right wing of the Democrats already claiming that that the left is the one that wants to focus on the white working class. And then you've got a bunch of them saying that, no, that is who we need to work on uh, to work with. And it's it's this very just undecided message, uh, very diffuse from the party, even as they prepare for an administration. It's going to take a few weeks at the very least before a coherent narrative takes shape in the aftermath of this election, I think it's fair to say. Just one more point on the Labor Department. Do you remember Trump's first nominee for the position of Secretary of Labor? No, but I'm sure you're going to tell me. Um, it was this guy named Andrew Puzder, who That's was right. um, CEO of Carl's Jr. and Hardee's, um, which should tell you where his labor policies are just from the start. He had gained some notoriety for statements he had made opposing the minimum wage, not not raising the minimum wage, just a, the, the idea of minimum wage, and among Republicans even for employing an undocumented immigrant. But what really undid his candidacy for that position were these allegations of abuse made by his wife. When that came out, that became an issue where his nomination had to be withdrawn. And I believe his replacement was a relative of Antonin Scalia. Eugene Scalia. Well, that's only since 2019, because for two years there, you had uh, Alexander Acosta, who, oh, that's right. Who had to leave because he also had to leave for, you know, uncomfortable circumstances. Yes. Namely, that he allowed Jeffrey Epstein to skate. This administration was a huge pack of the worst human beings on the planet. All of them. Literally all of them. If you just line them all up, these are corporate criminals of every variety. These are people who, you know, you had all of these appeals for kind of, you know, Democrats and liberals and, and the left should should sympathize with Republicans and conservatives and so on. And somebody in particular, I can't remember who it was, said something like, you should have the same kindness and decency that you sought from your president. And all I could think was, what absolute mark do you have to be to seek kindness and decency from any of these people? They were proud that they were the worst people on the planet. That was their appeal. If you talk to any of these 100,000 there Trump supporters who they all voted for him precisely because he was a horrible person. So this is not <laughs> it, it was incredible to me to watch people being like, well, you know, we really should pity them and so on. It's like, no, that is what they run on, that when they finally do get defeated, your better instincts will take over. No, these people are not do your sympathy. These people are not do your pity. These people were straight up evil in every little particle that makes up their bodies. And we should, even if we criticize the administration that's going to replace them, which we will, we should be so, so happy that they all ate crap on television. And and I think a lot of what you described is why there was such a visceral reaction yesterday when the news finally broke, though it had been apparent for a few days that Joe Biden would indeed be the winner of the election. You know, you saw celebrations break out in just about every city you could name, um, the larger ones at least. And, you know, there was a real sense of joy that hadn't been present in the last few years. And we're not here on punching out to say that that joy was wrong. It absolutely was deserved. That's right. We can all breathe a, a sigh of relief knowing that these people are out of power for now. 
And that, I think, is where we should end this segment, at least, before we get into some of the things that aren't, in fact, worth celebrating. We'll be back. So a lot of people can stop listening. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Still hi, y'all. We ended the last segment on a note of celebration, acknowledging the defeat of Donald Trump in this year's election. But we want to spend the rest of the show now talking about some of the things that are um, less joyous, some things that don't spark joy. Um, remember that? You know, about- <laughs> That's a great callback. It, namely, I'm going to talk about some of the... Um, ballot measures and the uh, down ballot races, we can say, that also took place in this year's election, and not all of which were positive. The, the big one, at least for our purposes, is this thing in California called Proposition 22, um, one of many ballot measures that get voted on every election in California. This one was particularly bad for workers. Effectively, Prop 22 was a ballot measure that was funded and more or less created by rideshare companies Uber and Lyft, who joined together to fight the good fight of uh, keeping workers' wages down. And Um, Ryan, I think DoorDash was also involved in case those of you who use that service a lot think you're uh, not complicit. I'm sure there were many more smaller um, rideshare and gig economy companies that were involved in this, but Uber and Lyft really took the... uh, prominent seat in that coalition. And what Proposition 22 did is it effectively undoes a lot of the regulations that had come into being in a California law called AB5, which had codified that gig economy companies could not just treat their employees as independent contractors, that it would have to give them the same benefits and other things that it does to people with the legal status of employee. This is a loophole in labor laws that gig economy companies have um, based their entire business model on exploiting that gap between those definitions. For example, they don't have to provide health benefits or even just a wage for all of the work that goes in uh, to the work. It, it really has been to their benefit to exploit this loophole. And effectively, they have reestablished it because Prop 22 passed by a significant margin. I think it got 58% of the vote in California after a $200 million campaign on behalf of these rideshare companies. Right. And I, I think it's particularly notable that, honestly, California's ballot initiative law is unhinged. Um, and one of the ways in which it is most unhinged, it's the fact that you can set conditions for how to repeal it. Hmm. Uh, I'm in education, so we're, uh, we talk every time we have to talk about financing schools, we have to talk about California uh, being unable to levy more than 1% property taxes to uh, fund various things. And then in this case, and, and how that has to be defeated or repealed by, I think it's three-fourths of the legislature. So it's it's basically immovable. And in this case, in Prop 22, somehow, I don't understand how this is allowed, but as part of the proposition, seven-eighths, that is 87.5% of the state legislature has to vote to uh, repeal. It basically. So that means it's basically enshrined forever unless a court throws it out or unless, uh, I don't know, you replace California with a workers' republic. <laughs> right. Uh, so it's, I, I know that that's not like the most objectionable thing about it, but it but tells you. It is, it tells you, you know, what it gives you a sense of how bad this is. Um, I, I do think there's, 
the stated rationale behind having these requirements of how big a majority you need to repeal something is that it really sucks when voters pass something only to see it undone by uh, legislators, um, as, as was the case in D.C. when they uh, got rid of the tipped minimum wage and allowed uh, restaurant workers to earn just the regular minimum wage for a change that was swiftly undone by uh, D.C. City Council. Though I think that may have been a unanimous vote in that case. But just to give a little bit of the specifics on what Prop 22 does, I'm going to read from an article in Dissent Magazine by Michelle Chen. Prop 22 asked voters to exempt rideshare and delivery drivers from a recently enacted landmark law, AB5, which raised the bar for determining whether a worker is an employee of a company or just an independent contractor a pioneering attempt to prevent worker misclassification by applying a stricter test of the extent to which employers exert control over workers' labor conditions. Ballot initiative comes in a year of economic devastation for Uber and Lyft drivers who have seen business dry up due to the pandemic and statewide lockdowns. And a lot of what Uber and Lyft did in this campaign was put the onus of campaigning on those very workers they were exploiting. They had on the app little uh, pop-up ads, effectively, that workers had to say yes to in order to get go away to say, uh, yeah, Prop 22 sounds good, before they could accept a ride. Yeah, and and I saw more than one person theorize that chances are pretty good that if you uh, didn't say yes, you probably wouldn't get as many requests afterwards. Listen, I work in an area where you have infiltration of technology, okay, uh, to, to a pretty intense degree. People really don't understand the level to which Silicon Valley types are aware of how much the rest of us are not able to access the innards of everything they do. They know that in their bones, and they use it to their advantage. This goes everywhere. This goes from the fact that uh, what is it? Cash registers for stores, instead of making mistakes at a 50-50 rate like you would expect, favor the store by 80 to 20. And it goes all the way to things like how uh, things like, uh, what is it? Learning management systems when they uh, have incredibly opaque or hard to search messages so that, you know, if you're a teacher and you're trying to find the last time that you talked to a student that's a lot harder for you because you have to look through all of your inboxes and there's no search function. Um, and here, in this case, what you have is Uber and Lyft knew that they could pay their programmers, who are probably also underpaid and abused, um, to code in everything they needed to ensure that their workers had to at least pretend to be in favor of this stuff and then uh, throw the book at them when they actually protested. And I mean, they. I think the important part is, Ryan, here's my question. California is this deep blue state, right? Correct. It's the one that everyone calls this amazing socialist state. So here's my question for you. How could a proposition uh, that is so anti-worker as we've been talking about, how could it pass in in such a uh, wonderful paradise? I think... The answer to that question, and I don't have all the answers, is that they spent a lot of money on this. This is, as we talked about, a $200 million campaign where their spending on Facebook ads alone outspent the entire opposition campaign. They had people convinced, some people convinced that this was actually a benefit for workers because the language was all about that wonderful gig economy term, flexibility. And they had other people convinced that without it, these companies would simply leave the state. They would perform a capital strike and decide not to serve the 40 million people in California who you know, are obviously a fertile ground for ride sharing. There's a lot of power in advertising and in media, as I think we've seen in these last four years. You can make people believe some things that just are at odds with reality. That's absolutely the case. And from what I understand, you know, the the degree to which people really thought that they were voting for something that was pro-worker is is much greater than you would expect. Like I I would 
if you told me that most Californians who voted for it went to vote for it thinking that this was something that would ultimately help drivers, I would believe you. I would also believe you if you told me the opposite, because quite frankly, I think most uh, most Americans are quite happy to ensure that we're all in the muck if uh, given a choice between that and having to put in a little bit more blood, sweat and tears to make life better for everybody. Mm-hmm. That's that's one of the big things that came out of the last four years, the tendency to which for a lot of people, the problem isn't the abuse of workers, the mistreatment of people, but the fact that it happens to all to to a subset of people. And then right. be, and then the the answer to that, I don't understand why, but the answer to that has generally been instead of putting in a little bit more work so that life gets better for everyone, in far too many cases, it's been, well, let's just make life worse for everyone, which is, you know, long-term, not not really helpful. Right. Um, I think to sort of boil it down to a, a simple phrase, and, and this applies just as much to the Trump administration as to uh, Prop 22, their success hinges on being able to obscure the extent to which they are harming workers and they somehow twist the language or contort the language or just lie to say that they are benefiting workers when they are hurting them. And that is how some of these things are sold. And to, and you are correct as well that for some voters, the cruelty is the point, so to speak. Um, there is an appeal in you know, just reducing wages because that means lower cost for me, right? Um, and to the point on reducing wages, again, from this dissent article, uh, Rideshare Drivers United estimates that Prop 22's rules for benefits and wages would leave drivers earning as little as five sixty four an hour, less than half the state's minimum wage after factoring in waiting time and related expenses, maintenance costs that the driver must shoulder on their own, and unpaid payroll taxes and employee benefits. Yeah, this this is a huge defeat. It it's the only people who win other than Uber and Lyft themselves are the people who complain like, well, I don't get paid for the time I take on my lunch break. You do. That's why it's a lunch break. But that that's it. It's I think it's as close to an unambiguous loss as you could get because there's literally nothing in the proposition that is you know, it, it did include provisions for some kind of uh, subsidies for health insurance premiums or so on. But the thing is, if they were treated as employees, they would just have health insurance through their company. Right. And the real fear is that this is going to be a strategy that other companies take and that Uber and Lyft and DoorDash take in other states. Now, now Ryan, that they've seen that they can just buy labor law, they will do it. And and why would you say that? It's not like they have a former Secretary of Transportation from the Obama administration who now works for Lyft saying that that is the exact thing they plan on doing. Right. And I believe Kamala Harris has uh, an advisor who works for Uber. You know, so there's there are some ways in which Silicon Valley and the Democratic Party at its institutional level um, are very friendly with each other, which no doubt aids these gig companies um, appeal in states like California. I think over the summer, there was um, this really cynical series of ads from Uber, where they said that if you are deleting Uber, you're on the side of racists, Um, which I'm not not really sure what their logic was in that. But well, a lot of Uber drivers are people of color. So I guess that right. there's like 15 ways they could twist reality to make that happen. We, By the way, uh, update. The person who resisted that AB5 for Uber, the, the public face of yep. Ubers, uh, not an advisor, was Kamala Harris's brother-in-law. Okay. Th- thank you for the correction. Um, now, Tuesday night was not all bad on this level for workers. Uh, in the state of Florida, a very prominent state for its elections, a $15 minimum wage passed at the same time as the state was electing Donald Trump, who opposes a $15 minimum wage, to a, a second term. So $15 minimum wage, both of us, you know, that's something to be happy about, but it does raise the question of that disparity between the success of this measure 
and, you know, Joe Biden's loss. Right. I think what you see there, because number one, Florida has done this before because they, they also did it in, uh, what was it? Was it 2016 or 2018 that they gave? Um, they, they voted uh, to restore voting rights to uh, felons. They did. And in, then in 2018, though, that was sort of uh, undercut by actions taken by the GOP legislature and governor. There it is. So, you know, there's the other side of uh, what I was uh, complaining about with California ballot initiatives, that that's exactly why you can set what kind of majority is needed to repeal it. But anyway, I think what you see there is the fact that, well, number one, as the left has been saying this whole time, progressive policy is popular. There there can no longer be any doubt that that is the case. And a $15 minimum wage, which is still not a living wage anywhere in this country, mm-hmm. is one of those things that due to unions, due to activist groups, due to, quite frankly, candidates who have stuck their neck out for it and gotten shot down by both of the major parties in this country, it started out by being something that people just rejected out of hand. And Mm -hmm. as time has gone on, the idea has become normalized. Sadly, even as $15, you know, falls further and further away from being any semblance of fair remuneration for the work that people do in this country, but it it has become something that people can get behind, even if they're not necessarily died in the wool Democrats and so on. And the problem is that because you have a Democratic Party that can't decide on its economic message – um, policies like that can triumph even in a state where Democrats like in Florida are in just absolute disarray and, and don't seem to be able to glom onto uh, an actual winning campaign. There, there is some shyness from Democratic elected officials about actually running on these policies. I, I think if you told a lot of people, a lot of Democrats even, that a $15 minimum wage would pass by, you know, 62% in Florida, a not just a swing state, but a state that is trending red. They wouldn't believe you. There is sort of this disbelief at their, the idea that their own policies are in fact popular. We saw not just with minimum wage, but with drug legalization in a few other states, New Jersey, uh, Mississippi, even, I believe that, you know, these policies that Democrats aren't always running on. Um, Joe Biden had $15 minimum wage in his platform, but I don't think you would say that it was the majority of his messaging as he talked about um, this battle for the soul of the nation in his terms. A so, $15 an hour soul is a pretty cheap one, you ask me. <laughs> right. But you know, it wasn't something that he was really touting when he talked about the president's personality and the importance of ousting him. He perhaps didn't have this association with raising the minimum wage that just raising the minimum wage does, I I guess I'm trying to say. Um, I I think it was the uh, writer Alex Perrine, who used to write for Gawker and now writes for The New Republic, who said that um, the ideal Democratic candidate is a ballot measure without an actual human attached. And I believe he said this two years ago when Missouri raised their minimum wage while voting out Claire McCaskill, who had been one of the most conservative Democrats in Congress. And who is now getting thank yous on the the same week that she went on air and uh, used, uh, is is it a slur officially? Is that the term we use for it? Or is it merely a problematic term Um, for Trent? Yeah. Point is. Mm -hmm. She said some horrible stuff about transgender people and was immediately just excused by liberals um, because she pulled off two terms from a red state, which actually only one term. What? Only one term. And she won that by beating uh, Todd Akin, who became infamous for using the term legitimate rape. Yep. I mean, it is actually pretty impressive that she pulled off. any political office while running on zero policy when that's something that Democrats love to criticize the Republicans for doing. But lest I be accused of being too bitter, I think that Perrine quote pretty much gets at it. I mean, there is a reason that that wasn't the central message 
of Joe Biden's campaign. There is a reason that Democrats are not running on progressive economic policy. And that's basically reducible to the fact that they've already convinced a lot of their voters that progressive economic policy is a non-starter because uh, it's fairly surprising the number of, of Democrats you see be it online or in real life, that don't seem to understand that they're in the party that's supposed to be to the left. And the other thing that they've done is develop a core of donors that absolutely, for whom that kind of policy is in fact a non-starter because it will reduce their power because it will shrink their bank account by like half a zero. And so that is already a problem. So what you've got now is Democrats refusing to run on policies that are proven to be popular, Democrats refusing to run on policies that would make them the actual party that they claim to be out of either basically being bought or a non a fear that is not borne out in reality. And so you begin to wonder how much of this is incompetence and how much of it is effectively malice. Because and and I don't really know because over the last 24 hours, like I already said, you've seen a lot of Democrats uh, immediately come out and blame the left of the Democratic Party and uh, these unidentified hundreds of thousands of socialist voters uh, who didn't turn out even in the highest turnout election since 1908 and all of this other stuff. And the thing about I it, think mm-hmm. they're not they're not necessarily blaming them for not turning out, but they're blaming them for existing for having messages that these moderate Democrats have been tarred with in their campaigns. Um, I think the logic to the extent that it is logic from, from the people who have made these comments is that just the presence of activists and calls for Medicare for all calls for defunding the police have harmed moderate candidates who never embraced those messages, but nevertheless had to deal with ads from Republicans accusing them of doing so. Right. And I think what for a lot of those Democrats, what it ultimately is, is that they ran on the Democratic ticket either because they're they are genuinely just far enough to the left of the Republican Party that they couldn't have a career through them or that, you know, the Democratic Party is just a a, what do you call it, a job program for uh, NGO types. But. You know, you had Abigail Spanberger from Virginia on that call. And if you talk to local Virginians from her district, they will happily tell you that the reason she had such a tough race is because she's apparently one of the more corrupt members of the House pretty openly. Um, or if you talk to uh, Jim Clyburn, the House Majority Whip, went on to talk about how Jamie Harrison, as soon as he defund the police, came out, then you know he was sunk against Graham. When you've got Democratic senators hugging Graham and thanking him for his leadership, and uh, even as Jim Clyburn is telling uh, the left that they need to vote like black voters, the Democratic Party got a lower share of the black vote in South Carolina than it did in multiple previous elections. So the data doesn't bear out this narrative, number one. And what also doesn't bear out this narrative of the left is endangering things, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez went on record to say that she has been offering to help Democrats keep their seats, just not even by political messaging, just by helping with the computer side of things, just you know, by teaching a few boomer representatives how to use the keyboard, essentially. <laughs> And that they've been rejecting her help, presumably because they think she's too far left. And as another Puerto Rican person who has been begging old people to let me help them not sink an enterprise for the past few years or so, I very acutely feel that. It it was really something to see her say, you know, I know what your vulnerabilities are because we've been unseating DCCC candidates in the past few years. We we know what you're not doing right. Let us help you. So she extended the olive branch. It got decisively rejected. And now, even though it was campaigns like hers, it was Rashida Tlaib in Michigan and Ilhan Omar in, in, in Minnesota who helped deliver those states that were not safely in the blue column before the election. You have this, uh, I mean, you want to talk about a battle for the soul. You have a battle for the soul of the Democratic Party right now. And even as one side is telling the other that they should be allowed to be joyful and everything, they're turning the cannons. 
And this is becoming a very dangerous moment for the future of the Democratic Party, because I think what you're going to see out of this is that the policy-free centrists, pardon me, who have really nothing to offer beyond representational politics, which are important if you couple them with policy, I think those people are in a very good position to win that fight. That's well put. And while we talk about the uh, battle for the future of the Democratic Party, we should take a break here and come back and talk about what we can and should expect from a Biden administration. You're listening to Punching Out on Wayo 104.3. You can subscribe to the show or listen to past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and other podcast apps. We are also on Facebook and Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hey, y'all. In this last segment of our show, we want to take a bit of time to talk about what we can and should expect from a Biden administration. We've made no secret of the fact that Trump's ouster is something to celebrate and that Biden of these two options was preferable. But if you are a longtime listener of Punching Out, you'll also understand that he would not have been our first choice for Democratic nominee. In the primary, he ran as more or less the most conservative candidate on the stage, the most moderate candidate on the stage. And that won for him among Democratic voters who were very concerned about ousting Trump and believe that the best way to do that was with this appeal to white working class voters in the upper Midwest. And to Biden's credit, his he performed better among white voters, winning a larger share of that vote than past Democratic candidates than Hillary, better than Hillary Clinton at the very least, and he did win. But now what is he going to do with that power? He spent a lot of the campaign talking about the importance of getting rid of Donald Trump. Now that he is president, now that he has accomplished what seemed to be his main task, what does he want to do? Uh, you, you pretty much nailed it by saying that he was there to get rid of Donald Trump because listeners, a little peek behind the scenes, while we were in between segments, it apparently came out that, and, and I don't know if this will still be true by the time that this airs, it's possible that the uh, story will be walked back or what have you. But apparently one of the, th- one of the first things he's done is ask Mitt Romney to lead the Department of Health and Human Services which is pretty great if we remember how 2012 was a referendum on the Affordable Care Act. Mm. Yeah, that, there is definitely an irony there. And do you remember do you remember when Mitt Romney was the most evil person in America because he was he had the gall to be the Republican nominee? I I remember the Obama campaign in 2012 being shockingly uh class focused. If you go back and look at that campaign, so much of their messaging was painting Mitt Romney as an out-of-touch billionaire in ways that his successors, Obama as the Democratic nominee, haven't really done with Donald Trump. Um, Biden to a little more extent than Hillary, certainly, but people don't like out-of-touch billionaires, as it turns out. Yeah, I guess the problem is that it's very hard to sell that messaging to your out-of-touch billionaire friends who are donating money to your campaign. Right. And Biden did benefit from a lot of money from industries like we talked about in the tech sector and elsewhere. Now, we know the general gist of what a Biden administration will mean, and we know even more of what it will mean if Republicans maintain control of the Senate, as I believe they are likely to do. Democrats would need to win both of the runoff races in Georgia for Senate in order to narrowly grab control over that uh, branch. The Biden administration will look a lot like his campaign. He is not going to try to uh, achieve these big progressive policy goals. He is going to at least try to reach across the aisle to a Republican Party that rejected his appeals to reach across the aisle when he was vice president. And is already rejecting his appeals to reach across the aisle now. Mitch They're McConnell saying the election was stolen. Yeah. And even those Republicans who are already distancing themselves from Trump because that ship is sinking and Republicans are nothing if not rats um, 
even they are saying, you know, Mitch McConnell went on record to say he's not going to work. He he will not allow any progressives to be appointed to anything because the Republicans are going to remember that they're an opposition party, something that far too many Democratic senators who could have cast some guilt-free opposition votes early on in the Trump presidency just for some reason decided not to. It, it, was, uh, it was certainly an interesting dynamic to see you know, Kirsten Gillibrand and Bernie Sanders being like the only two people voting no on a majority of Trump's cabinet. One of those uh, senators, one of those Democratic senators who at times went along with the Trump administration was Doug Jones, who became senator of Alabama during a special election uh, in which he beat uh, accused pedophile Roy Moore. And then, you know, he spent two years being on the conservative edge of the uh, Democratic Party and was ousted nonetheless by a college football coach. Yeah. Doug Jones is has been floated as a possibility now for attorney general now that he is uh, no longer senator. Um, really, a lot of battles will be fought over the nature of Biden's cabinet because, you know, those personnel decisions can, as we've seen under Trump, have big impacts on policy, even if Congress isn't always willing to go along for the ride. Um, You know, a lot of the shocking stories we saw on immigration under Trump are things that, you know, Senate and Congress didn't vote on. They were decisions made under the executive branch. They were decisions made by ICE and by DHS. With an increasingly powerful executive branch, uh, you have the problem that personnel becomes policy to a large extent. That that's something, uh, friend of the show, Walter, uh, had said recently. And uh, boy, if that's the case, uh, we're, we have a lot of reasons to be worried about the direction that a Biden administration will take. Um, I'll give you one example. Mm-hmm. The most, For me, the most important uh, policy, if you really want to tell a truly uh, an administration that not even necessarily on a political side is progressive, but at least gives a damn about good governance is education because it's an issue that too many people forget about. It's something that's mainly left to the states. And it's something that not a lot of people actually dig into the details on because for the most part, people are just happy to complain about bad teachers and leave it at that. But uh, Biden committed to putting a former public school teacher as his secretary of education. That sounds great. It's, It's a great thing to say rhetorically. But the fact is, there is a massive class of former public school teachers who, for whatever reason, after five years in the classroom, decided to go become grifters. And all of them, trust me, are available for appointment. There's been some push to have uh, an education professor from uh, Stanford, Linda Darling-Hammond, and that happened as well during the Obama administration. And he had multiple chances to appoint her and didn't, choosing to instead go with people like Arne Duncan. So, you know, that that for that to me, if you really want to get a handle on what a Biden administration will look like, that should be the first signal. Whoever gets appointed to lead that department is, I think, going to be uh, incredibly dispositive for the future of that of that government. Um, Obviously, the Biden administration will be coming into power in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of an economic collapse. Um, And one thing that um, I think is likely now is that there will not be any more financial aid coming from the federal government between now and when Biden takes office. The, you know, the Republican Party has no interest in improving economic conditions when those improved conditions will redound to Joe Biden's benefit. And so, you know, as we saw under the Obama administration, which came into power, you know, right as the uh, Great Recession was peaking. They will have big choices to make about what they do to address these problems. And under the Obama administration, with you know hindsight, it's safe to say that a lot of their decisions didn't go far enough. The stimulus they provided back then was too small. They did nothing to uh, curtail the power of the big banks that had come into public control for a brief time, owing to the bailout. Um they didn't prosecute anybody who was responsible for that financial crisis. And my fear and the fear of many people on the left, and I'm sure you too, is that the Biden administration will look a lot like the Obama administration in that respect. It will not go far enough in order to 
do the things that are necessary to really root out this country's problems. That's right. As a millennial, this is this is something another friend of the show, Louise, uh, said some time ago. You know, we we have this problem in this country where we can't admit that we're making the same mistake twice. So even though the 2007-2008 economic crash in some ways was just as bad as the Great Depression, we couldn't call it that because that would be admitting that we got suckered by the stock market twice. So we had to call it the Great Recession. Then the pandemic happened, and then we couldn't admit that there was another massive recession coming. So she suggested, you know, what what are we going to call it? The great fridge clean out um, or something like that. She may have even said this on the show. That may be what I'm remembering. But the point is, these things are going to keep happening, this boom and bust economic cycle. And as somebody who got hit with both of these, as my first, as my uh, career was just starting to take shape, and then just as some semblance of stability was beginning to appear in my economic life, um, I know that that is a privilege that a lot of people have not had. Don't get me wrong. I realize that in many ways I have been more inured to the impacts of the capital E economy than a lot of people. But I also know that I am not completely immune from them. And more importantly, I know what it looks like when an administration actually tries to solve those issues. And I and I know that because it's what the Obama administration didn't do, either in policy or in their rhetorical approach to the crises that they faced. And it's not looking very likely that the Biden administration will do it. And let me be real clear about this. I hope I'm wrong. If today, if a year from today, as we're sitting here discussing this, there has been an attempt at a real new new deal, I guess that's two news in there. Um, if there has been some kind of massive investment in getting working people the money that they deserve, if Joe Biden has gone before you know uh, Congress to ask for a living wage nationally, if uh, this administration has put people in charge who make it easier for workers to organize. If they've packed the Supreme Court, all of these things, you know, if this happens, you, I will be the first person to happily raise my hand and say, I was wrong. But that is not likely to happen. And we're already getting the first warning signals that it won't. And I think what's far more likely is that this administration will insist that it can't do anything, that its hands are tied, and expect its voters, who in many cases agree with the policy positions that I'm talking about, Mm -hmm. to do the hard work of defending them from their own cowardice. Yeah. There there will be – my concern is that Trump has been voted out. How much of that was due to an affinity for Joe Biden? Obama came into power. It was – very clear that Obama had a, you know, a unique appeal that really generated enthusiasm among a lot of voters. I'm not sure that exists for Joe Biden. And so he may not have as many defenders as presidents pass. Now that Donald Trump is out of the picture, what will happen if Joe Biden goes head to head with a Republican Senate and loses? Will there be grassroots enthusiasm to fight the Republican Senate to push for uh, regaining control of that branch of Congress. It remains to be seen. One thing I can say, you know, this is punching out. We like to end the show on a positive note sometimes is that there is some historical precedent for people who were not necessarily ideologues, for people who were not necessarily born progressive to come into the presidency and nevertheless oversee some real progressive changes in this country. That can be said about LBJ, who oversaw uh, the Civil Rights Act passage and, you know, instituted the Great Society with Medicare and Medicaid, you know, fought the war on poverty. You know, these are big changes in United States governance. And the same was true of FDR, who was a millionaire in New York City before becoming president. You know, he was not a class warrior, even on the campaign trail in 1932, but he governed as one because that's what the situation demanded. Will Joe Biden rise to that situation? Who can say? Probably not me. Um, 
But for this week, I'm Ryan. I'm Noah. This was Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.